Good afternoon and welcome to my latest edition of my Ask the Expert series. My name is Ann Garcia. For those of you who don't know me, I am a the only financial advisor in Portland, Oregon, and I also write a blog called The College Financial Lady, where I talk about how to plan to pay for college. As part of that, I get a lot of questions from areas that are sort of outside my immediate area of expertise. And um, so I set up this series so I could bring in experts to talk about those areas. And today it is my absolute privilege to be talking to Richard Ellis, who is the executive director at My529, which is the Utah College Savings Plan and widely recognized as the best um, 529 plan available in the country. Richard joined My529 in November of 2015 as the Senior Director for Compliance, Finance, and Investments, and prior to that he served two terms as the Utah State Treasurer. He is a member of the College Savings Plan Network Executive Committee. As State Treasurer, he was actively involved with the National Association of State Treasurers, having served as the Association's President in 2014. He received the NAST Harlan Boyles Edward T. Alter Distinguished Service Award in 2011, the Jesse M. Unna Award in 2015, and the Lucille Moore Award in 2018. He received his MBA from the University of Utah and a Bachelor of Science in Business from Brigham Young University. And in addition to that, he's the father of six children, some college graduates and some college students. So he's used um, 529 accounts to fund his own um, children's college educations. And let me guess, Richard, you use the Utah 529 plan for that. Okay. <laughs> that was a, not a trick question at all. Um, so I thought we would kick off um, with uh, you know the fact and fiction aspect of 529 plans. There are a lot of myths and misunderstandings out there about 529 plans and how they work. So I'm gonna um, say some, some familiar beliefs and I want you to tell me true or false and um, feel free to add anything um, to that as you go. Is that there are a lot, of, um, a lot of myths and misunderstandings around 529 plans. So I'm gonna tell you some common beliefs about 529 plans and you can tell me if they are true or false. So first of all, you can only invest in your own state's 529. That's false. Um, you know, I think that comes from prepaid plans. People originally with the prepaid plan that that was how you paid for college and it had to be an in-state um, plan. Savings plans came after prepaid and we've seen savings plans with great flexibility can be used at any school across the country that receives federal financial aid. Um, can even be used internationally at schools that you can use uh, federal financial aid. Great flexibility. Excellent. Um, so another uh, an, another common belief is if you don't use your 529 money for college, you lose it, which is to say parents should wait to start funding a 529 until they know if their kid's going to go to college or not. Um, you know, that's not true. The 529s, again, are extremely flexible. Uh, fund a plan for your student and see whether they go to college or not. If not, you can always transfer it to another sibling. You can transfer it to members of the family, which is a very broad definition. If you go to a cousin, you go to a grandchild. Um, you know, you can always take it back to yourself and name yourself as a beneficiary. Go take some classes for yourself back in college or find a nice study abroad program through the university and go learn to cook in Italy for a month or two months. <laughs> If only. <laughs> yes. um, how about this one? If I save in a 529 plan, my child will get less financial aid. 
you know, we get that question all the time, and that that's kind of true and, and false in the same breath. Um, the, the parent asset in the, the FAFSA formula are considered at 5.64%, so it would reduce the expected family contribution by 5.64%. So on $10,000 would be $564 reduction in the expected family contribution. So that's not significant, but yes, there is an impact. Um, if the, the plan is in the child's name or if it's a grandparent, for instance, I'm saving for my grandchildren now, if I give that money to them, they have to recognize it as income, and that's a 50% reduction for them. But there are ways to work around that. So uh, if, if the parent owns it, it really is not a huge impact for a FAFSA. Yeah. I mean, as you said, if you have $10,000 in the account, it'll cost you $564 in financial aid. So basically, that leaves you ahead by $9,500. I would take that bet any day that I take the 9500 and give up the money. Right? I feel like um, there are bigger ways to waste money on your kids than, <laughs> um, than that. Um, how about this? If my child gets a scholarship, I'll lose the money in my 529 since I can't use it. Yeah, there's special provisions in the IRS code, Section 529, to allow for scholarships. So if your child does receive a scholarship, you can take an amount out equal to the scholarship and not have to pay the 10% penalty. You would have to pay income tax on the earnings portion only of the withdrawal. But remember, scholarships are often very narrow. They pay for tuition, they pay for fees. You still have room and board, you have books, you may need to buy a computer. Um, there are other costs that you can use your 529 plan for, so it's always good to have that savings, even if your child does have scholarships. Yeah. You know, it's funny, people ask about that a lot, and it is so rare that we see someone with more money in their 529 than they actually need for um, need for college. That um, I think it's 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 cute that people worry about that. We all wish our kids were brilliant that we get full right scholarships, but that happens to such a small percentage that we need to be preparing ourselves to that inevitability. Yeah, that is the unfortunate reality. You know, the, the full ride scholarship that pays tuition, room, board, books, fees, and everything else that goes along with college is uh, is a little bit of a, a unicorn for the non-football um, players. Um, okay, here's one. Uh, using a 529 plan is a great way to ensure that my child has lots of choices for college. Uh, I don't know that having a 529 plan ensures lots of choices. There's no guarantee they'll get admitted to any school, they'll be able to go to college or anything else. But I think having the savings in place prepares for opportunities. I, I think there's a couple of things there. In many ways, it becomes aspirational for the child to know they have an account out there, an expectation to go to college or to gain some additional skill. Maybe it's a trade school. Um, but to know there's a means, you create that aspirational goal for them. Um, but then it's flexible and you can use it anywhere they go. So it's a great way to, to invest for your child's future. Yeah. I, I read a data point somewhere that was saying that actually um, families that had any level of college savings, um, their children were, um, were significantly more likely to enroll in and complete college than those who didn't and they were they said that was true across income levels and even with very very small levels of savings just the fact that someone was thinking about it 
enough to set a little bit of money aside was, um, and I don't know that the, which one's cause and which one's effect, but. <laughs> yeah, there was a study out of University of Kansas in 2013 timeframe, and that was their finding. They were three times more likely to go to college and four times more likely to graduate. They had even less than $500 in a college savings plan. Yeah. Um, can you, so switching gears a little bit, um, because it sounds like we have covered the topic that 529s are good to have. <laughs> you should have one. Um, can you explain one of the common investment vehicles in a 529 isn't an, an age-based or a target enrollment date portfolio. Can you talk a little bit about how those work and why a family might choose that as their investment option? Sure. You know, I think for the average person, uh, an age-based or a target date, enrollment date, uh, portfolio makes a lot of sense because it's really a set it forget it option. You make the investment and you really don't have to worry about adjusting your portfolio over time. Think of it in terms of risk that they're designed to de-risk the portfolio and to define risk as equity or stock exposure in that portfolio. So when they're young, you want to have a lot of risk in there, grow the portfolio. But as it could be 17, 18 years of age, you don't want to have the risk of equities in there and market corrections that, that take away the value of your investment. And so an age-based portfolio, as the beneficiary gets older each year, reduces exposure to stock and increases exposure to bonds and money market funds, uh, perhaps an FDIC-insured bank product. And so it de-risks that portfolio so when you get to college, you know your money's there for Excellent. So, and I, I find as a financial advisor that um, that 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 tax-free aspect of the rebalancing that um, that goes on in an age-based account is um, is one of the most frequently overlooked aspects of um, you know of investing in a five twenty nine. I hear from a lot of people. Well, why not just choose a tax-efficient investment in a taxable account and not pay? the added costs associated with it. And it's pretty easy to do the math to say that you will pay more in taxes than you will pay in. <laughs> um. you know, I think we all, we all hate to give up control. And, and essentially you do that in the investments. If I have it in a taxable fund, I can choose the investments. But you've got to be actively engaged in monitoring what's happened. But those taxes are going to far exceed whatever your expenses are in the 529 investment. I mean, your tax rate on estates can be 3, 4, 5, 9% counting federal taxes. Yeah. So that tax deferred earning is huge. And so what if you are paying half a percent in fees, which would be really high in the 529 world, you're still coming way ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, as a financial advisor, I generally recommend the Utah plan for clients who are investing in an out-of-state plan, but what are some of the factors that families should consider when weighing their own in-state plan versus an out-of-state plan? You know, what makes a good plan, whether it's in or out-of-state? That's a great question, Anne. Um, I think the number one factor to consider is what tax benefit does my state offer? Uh, do they give me a tax deduction or a tax credit for my contribution? And is that credit or contribution greater than what I want to pay in fees if my plan's fees were high? Generally, it's not going to be that. In-state plan will make a lot of sense. Other things to consider when looking at your own state plan is, is uh, are there scholarships or other financial aid that may be tied to it? There are some programs that 
will offer savings incentives to use their plan, so you'd want to take advantage of those. Um, but if your state doesn't have an income tax, you're really wide open because you're not going to get the deduction, you're not going to get the credits, you might just as well look at any of the 92, 93 plans that are available across the country and see what's the right fit for you. And if you look at other plans, you want to look at what are their fees, are they, are they low, are they high, are they medium? What are their investment options? They have investment options that I like that meet my risk tolerances and the way I would like to invest the money. Um, you know, there's even states out there that you can invest in another state's plan. There's seven or eight that we call them parity states that doesn't matter which plan you invest in, you still get that, that uh, state tax incentive for your home state. So, you know, you want to look and say, can I invest in a plan that has lower fees or has better investment options or returns that I like better? So. A lot of reasons to consider an out-of-state plan, but you always should look at state first to see what works best for you. Yeah. Um, so I've read that on average, families start saving for college when their child is seven. Um, at that age, a lot of the age-based portfolios are already pretty conservative and might not deliver the growth that a family is looking for, particularly... I know your state, um, the Utah plan has conservative, moderate, and aggressive allocations at every age um, range, but that's not always the case. Um, you know, how big of a concern should that be for a family, you know, again, who is who is starting at that, you know, typical age, age seven saving age? When I started, my first two were too old to open an account for and get any tax benefit. So I missed out on that. So when my next three came, I have triplets that were my next three. So I opened accounts for them, but they were 16 when I finally did that. So I was really late to the game. And my youngest was about 11 when I opened his account. So I was late getting started. I think there's a few things to consider. One is any dollar that you save is one less dollar you're going to have to borrow in a student loan or one less hour you have to work part-time while you're going to school, which can cause you to go six years instead of four years to get through a program or any of those things. So even though you're late, it makes sense. But I think the other thing is that every plan out there, they have age-based options. They also have what they'll call single fund or multi-fund investment options, uh, where you can look at your own risk tolerance. What's my risk appetite? Am I willing to be more aggressive even though my child's seven I still want to be in a 100% equity portfolio until that child turns 13. There's an option I could take that would meet that. If I'm more conservative and I'm worried about the market going up and down every day, I could get in a bond fund that is not going to have much fluctuation. So plans have different investments that will meet your risk tolerances. So even though they're 7, even though they're 16, there's something you can invest in to get started. And again, every dollars saved is one less you have to borrow and pay interest on later. Yeah. We, now that our kids are in college, we sort of use our 529 as our emergency savings account because the interest is tax-free and we have a we have an FDIC insured option because we know that since they're in college, we can take the money out. Um, you have to pay taxes on it. It's not going to be that much. Exactly. Exactly. Um, with the recent changes to the tax laws that have expanded the use of 529s to things like um, K through 12 education and trade schools, are you seeing an increase in savings or do you worry that allowing more non-college options for spending 529s leaves families underfunded for college? You know, we're just now getting a couple of years of history. We've got about two and a half years experience with K through 12 use for public, private and uh, 
um, religious schools so we're just finishing a study internally. What's interesting is we're seeing accounts that have been opened since January 1, 2018 that are taking withdrawals for K-12. They're very conservative in their investment options, typically an FDIC insured fund. Uh, but we still see a lot of families that are pulling them out of the regular age-based ones. But 73, 75% continue to save on a monthly basis, putting money into their plans. And, and that's what I would expect. I think people, if you're sending your child to private school, um, you're saving already probably for their college, you continue to do that. I think you have to weigh it also. It's a really worth kind of flowing money in and out on an annual basis. You don't have a lot of time to save money for K through 12. And so, uh, you know, do I just flow it through to get a tax credit? Maybe you do, and, and you're, you're happy with that. So we're seeing a little impact, but it's not significant impact at this point in time because of the expansion. Um, you know, one of the new ones is, just as last year, is expanding it to be able to pay student loans up to $10,000 in a lifetime for a child and for a sibling of that child. Um, you know, it's early. We'll see how that plays out in the coming years. If, if their balance is left, I'm sure people will start using those to pay off student loans. Yeah. It's, well, it's also, you know, we've seen some families who have fully funded college through their 529s um, and are eligible for the AOTC. We have them take out the, you know, take out enough in student loans, you know, $2,000 a year in student loans um, to max out the AOTC and then repay that with their, um, with their 529. Um, <clears throat> But there's a lot of gymnastics you can do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, hey, I wanted to switch gears. Um, we've had a few questions from um, from uh, people out there. Um, I want to make sure that we have enough time to take any questions that are there. So a couple that have come in already. Um, the first one is um, from a parent who received a, um, they received a full scholarship for tuition and then paid for all of their room and board from their 529, um, and then they received a $1,500 CARES Act refund from their school. Um, what should they do with that $1,500? You know, I think for the first time we're seeing this type of thing happen. Congress actually changed the law a couple of years ago to allow for a recontribution into a 529 account. So in this instance, when you get a refund directly from the school, you can recontribute to your 529 account. You don't have to worry about tax implications. Um, if you just take that and you don't put it back in the 529, you have to pay taxes on that portion. So uh, my advice would be take that, recontribute to your 529 plan, call them up, see what you need to do. You have to be mindful there's a 60-day window from the time the school issues that uh, to when you recontribute that. Although for this year, they've expanded that window, I think, to July 15th. So, we're fast approaching that day for recontribution, but it's nice you can put that money back into a fund if you ever get a, a, a refund from school and just make the recontribution and keep it going in your savings. Excellent, and that's generally the case with any um, with any inadvertent non-qualified distribution, right? As long as you recontribute it within sixty days. Right, right. Mm -hmm. It has to be one that comes directly from the school. So if you're paying rent to a private property owner and they refund you money. Okay, that is a very helpful clarification. So, um, second one is um, 
from a couple who are planning to start a family sooner rather than later and feeling like they have more cash on hand right now than they're likely to once their baby is born. Seems like a reasonable expectation. Um, can well, it only gets worse. <laughs> I remember my daughter. My daughter's reward for potty training was ballet, and I was like, "Wait, I wanted to not be paying for something." Um, um, but can they um, can they set up a five twenty nine account now, um, even though the child is just an idea at this point? Um, and if so, who do they name as the beneficiary? How do they invest it? Because aren't typically your age-based account uh, investments are based on the beneficiary's age? Based on the beneficiary's age, and that's a great question. Um, and I, I think more people ought to be thinking that way because there's the opportunity. Well, you you need to have a taxpayer identification number, a social security number for a beneficiary in establishing the account. So if they're not around, it's a little difficult to do that. The option though is to open the account, name yourself as your beneficiary, name your spouse as a beneficiary, and then when the child is born, you can transfer that account into the child's name, and then begin to use an age-based option. So you have to an age-based option may not work well if you're say 33. Uh, they're going to have you in conservative options, and maybe you want to grow it. So put it in a, a multi-fund option, a balanced account, or all equity exposure and let that money grow and then when the child's born transfer it and then make another investment option change at that point. Right. So that would be the same thing if it were a grandparent who were who were thinking of here's where I want to spend my stimulus yeah. check or something like that. <laughs> you know speaking of um, putting money into savings or not. Do you have any um, any general guidance for families about how they might balance the cost of college, saving for college against saving for retirement or, or other priorities? And knowing that every family's situation is, is different. You know, that, that's a real challenge to answer that question. You can read headlines and articles on every day. Um, you know, I, I think unless your kids have all promised that they're going to take care of you in your old age, and now that I'm taking care of my mother in her old age in an assisted living center, uh, you know, she's got to make sure she's got assets to take care of herself so I'm not paying the bill. Sometimes it may be worth paying the bill just to not have them live with you in my experience, too, but don't tell my mother that. <laughs> um, you know, I think you have to think about yourself first, but then again, it comes back to the concept, if I can say five or ten or twenty dollars a month for my child I have to do that too um, you know maybe you can't put 200 a month or 500 a month or whatever the number is that's a, that's a lot of money but if you could do ten dollars a month to start with and increase that over time as your pay goes up and there's more cash then do that because that money will always be helpful in the future so I wouldn't defer it and say oh you know make sure you max out your retirement yeah do as much as you can into retirement or whatever's left, think about that child now also. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great suggestion. Because, um, you know, the, the other thing that we find is your child is probably going to go to college when they're 18. You might choose to retire when you're 65, when you're 70, when you're 62. So you have one one fairly known <laughs> known date that's looming. Um and uh, and another that could be subject to a lot of variables 
by choice or or not by choice as we're as we're seeing right, right now. Um, for a family that is, um, what you know, are we typically see that families are financing college through a combination of savings, cash flow, and and borrowing as need be. How do you have any um, rules of thumb for how to spend down a five twenty nine account over the college years? Again, knowing that every family is different and their savings are different. <laughs> I don't know that I have any real rule of thumb on how that ought to be spent. You know, I think back of, uh, I've got six boys, um, five of them have finished their undergraduate studies, four have finished graduate school, um, one is about to finish his undergrad studies, and I had four in college at one time, so it was cash flow, it was their working, <laughs> it was a 529 plan, it was any available dollar. Yeah, all hands that. on deck. <laughs> and amazingly, I got all six with a five, and I'm going to get all six through their undergraduate studies without ever having to borrow any student loan money. I guess my oldest son borrowed twenty-five hundred dollars. Congratulations! Um, that was not significant. I sent them off to graduate school. They were on their own for graduate school. Mm -hmm. One's a doctor, another one's finishing his residency in oral surgery, so they're on their own. They can pay back those hundreds of thousands of dollars themselves. But um, you know, I think you just have to figure out what happens now. If you have grandparent 529 accounts, I think there becomes a little more strategy in the use of those because they need to be willing to transfer it to you and make you the account owner as a parent, again, coming back to FAFSA and the expected family contribution, or use the grandparents' money the last two years of the child's education because then the impact of the child having to recognize that as direct income and uh, reducing their contribution or probably 50% amount of that uh, has less impact because it won't flow through on their tax form. Mm -hmm. So the strategy, if it's a non-parent owned account. Excellent. So, you know, you mentioned having had a lot of your own family go, go through, um, go through college and, you know, spend down savings and use cash flow. As financial advisors, we often, you know, tell people that personal finance is equal parts personal and finance, right? There's always a math problem we can do to say this is the right way to go, but it also has to, you know, your personal experience and your values and, and all those things are going to, um, are, are going to inform the choices that you make um, beyond just, uh, just the math. Are there things that you learned over the course of your own family's educational journey um, that would that would cause you to do things different, or you know, give different guidance than what the strict math problem might tell you. Um, I'm putting you on the spot asking that. <laughs> no, that's a great question. You know, if I could go back and do it all over again, you know, in the back of my mind, I was always saving. I was saving in taxable accounts, not significant amounts, but a little bit, and thinking I'll pay for it. You know, when I went to school umpteen million years ago, it seems. Uh, and I grew up in Oregon, in Southern Oregon. I went to University of Oregon. I could go work at a lumber mill and warehouser, a warehouser for three months in the summer. And I made enough money to pay tuition, room, board, books, fees, everything, and have a few hundred dollars left over at the end of the year. And that was three months working. And that doesn't happen today, so you have to look at it very differently. Um, you know, I wish I would have been saving, in, and I knew about 529 accounts since you got centers up in 1996. I never checked into the advantage of it until about 2004, 2005, which was my mistake because I put money in there. So I, I think 
you know, you really need to evaluate your options because it's going to be a mix of cash flow, of borrowing, of work study, of, of all that it is. But I, I wish I would have started saving in a distinct account earlier. It would have been even easier for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, in, over the course of our lifetimes, it sure changed. You know, not too long ago, my mom sent up a bunch of my old papers, and one of them was a tuition statement from Berkeley. And I think my one semester of tuition was like 700 dollars. Yeah, community college. <laughs> I don't think you can even go to community college for that community anymore. Community college, that anymore. They're still 1250 Yeah. Well, if we don't have any other questions, um, I know we're coming up on half an hour, and this has been extremely helpful. And um, so, again, last call for questions. If you have any, please do um, please do type them into the um, into the message section here. Um, Richard, this has been so, so helpful. Do you have any um, any final words of wisdom, anything we didn't cover that you wish people knew? I mean, whole pages of notes here where I can talk <laughs> probably for two or three hours. But, uh, well, I got uh, time. It's up to you. <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to mention one other thing we didn't talk about or I didn't bring up, but when we're talking about state uh, tax credits, tax deductions, I think you, you need to be mindful also that um, there could be clawback provisions within state law that if you move back to another plan or you change beneficiaries or ownership on those accounts, that some states will claw back that tax um, incentive that you've received over the years at the state level and you need to be mindful of that. So that's an interesting aspect that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to. Well, and I think another place where people where that's coming up a lot is in the states that have not gone along with the um, K twelve provisions right. of the five twenty nine plans. That that for state purposes, that's a non qualified distribution tax applies, penalty applies, and often clawback applies as as well. Right, right, and yeah, states are all unique in how they define what qualified higher education expenses are. In Utah, we follow the federal definition, so as Congress has changed that, we automatically. Uh, adopt those, but other states have specific provisions, so they can cut in things like that for K-12 or uh, student loans, so I'll be questions for them until they have state statutory changes if they're even made. Yeah, and and some states, I mean, there have been two sets of rule changes with respect to 529s and what's eligible for them, and some states, for example, Oregon, did not go along with the K-12, but did go along with the student loans, trade schools, and, and everything else, so um, so the onus is on the um, the spender of the 529 to make sure that. Um, and yeah, because the 529 plans, we're not collecting the information. We're not requiring you give us receipts on how it's spent. So we don't track that. So if, if your tax revenue department in the state comes after you, you're kind of on your own to be able to prove what your expenses were and, and to take care of those things. So have to be really mindful at your own state level what's happening. Yeah. So, um, so here's a question related related to that because, um, and this is something that comes up all the time on on my blog. When you get your uh, 1098T, it's only for tuition. When you get your 1099 from your 529, um, it could be for tuition, room, board, books, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it can be quite a, a significantly larger um, larger number. In most cases, the guidance is. You know, as the money has been distributed to the student, just make sure that you have have receipts in the unlikely event that that gets audited. Is there anything 
that is likely to trigger a red flag? And you may be putting on your ex-treasurer hat for this question. <laughs> no, I, I'm not aware of uh, uh, a lot of things, at least in, in Utah, where these audits happen. There are a few times that we will have some triggers out there, but uh, by and large, you're not going to trigger anything, but you still need to have the receipts because you just don't know when you're going to get caught or maybe something else on the tax return that triggers them. And then when they come in and look at it and dig into it, they're going to find something more. So you just have to keep those receipts as they come in. Yeah. Oh, here come, here's a question. How often do people get audited for college expenses? Great question. I have no idea. I have not heard a lot of it around the country and talking to my colleagues, but it's it going to happen out there occasionally, but I think it's going to be on those tax returns that, so that would be another reason to have the distribution go to your child rather than the yeah. yeah. I tend to have my distributions go to the beneficiary. You know, we make tuition, I let them pay out of their accounts, send the money to them to reimburse them. And, um, that way I'm not worried about it on my tax return. Yeah. Well, and if it ends up being a non-qualified distribution, it's taxed at their rate, not much lower yours, lower rate, which yeah. Mine haven't yet broken any big tax ceilings. <laughs> um, yeah, so so anything else um, that you feel would be helpful for? I was just thinking one thing we haven't talked a lot about. You know, we've kind of focused on for college, but, you know, I think one of the great changes made this last year is expanding the use for registered apprenticeship programs. So they have to be registered with the Department of Labor, but... You know, in, in today's world, I think people are questioning the value of higher education, and, and maybe rightfully so. Um, college isn't for every child out there. Out of my six boys, college is probably right for five of them. The one that's still struggling to get through, I don't think college is the right track, and I can't convince him to the technical trade or something because his brother's got a college degree. He needs one. Um, but that's the beauty of the 529 savings plans, is they can be apprenticeship programs, they can go to technical colleges, um, a lot of different places that, that give the skill to be successful in life, in life is what's important, and 529 can help with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's another question. What if you're divorced and one parent pays one year and another the next out of separate 529s? Any recommendations? Want me to take that one? Yeah, you take that one. <laughs> okay, I've so <laughs> so so here's what happens. Um, both parents can use their 529s, but um, it depends which parent files the FAFSA as the custodial parent. So let's say mom is the custodial parent, mom and dad, for the FAFSA purposes, this can be separate from your divorce decree, it can be separate from your tax filing. Whichever parent files on the FAFSA, that 529 is considered a parent-owned 529. It's reported as an asset, but the distributions are not reported as income to the student. If the other parent, the non-custodial for FAFSA purposes parent, uses their 529 to pay for college expenses, then that is treated as income to the student. So similar to what Richard was saying before about grandparent 529s, um, that non-custodial parent 529 um, withdrawals from it are income to the student. So you either want to push those back to the later years of college or 
um, just know that they're going to impact your student's financial aid. Now, not every student has need-based financial aid, so it doesn't necessarily need to be um, need to be a consideration. But that is the kind of thing that once you're um, once you choose a college and have your aid package in hand and know whether it's need-based or merit-based or whether you're just paying it all, then you can make a decision about the order of events for those 529 distributions. Um, and again, custodial parent on the FAFSA does not have to be custodial parent in the divorce decree or um, the person who's claiming the student has um, on, on their taxes. Uh, trying to think if there were, well, so let's say, um, let's say uh, that a family finishes college and still has money left in in their account it sounds like there's all kinds of things they can um, they can do with that uh, absolutely you know I, I would always recommend that you just keep it in the plan um, anticipate that grandchild you know so maybe your, your your child finishes you may not see a grandchild for six more years or eight more years you can still continue to contribute to that plan. You can still get the state tax incentive. Um, but I think keeping in the plan and building that savings foundation is really important. Uh, you can always transfer that to a sibling's account. You can transfer it to another family member. Uh, you know, transfer it to yourself to take those classes again. Go to Italy and learn how to cook. Or, you know, pay it out if you want to. You'll pay taxes on the earnings portion only, not on the principal you've invested. And yet there's a 10% penalty on top of it too, but if worse came to worse, that's money you could have. But but in my mind, you should always do what you can to keep it within a savings plan. Yeah. You, you think we're still gonna be paying for college in the future? <laughs> I think so. It's a nice idea to think we'll never have to pay for it, but it can be free, but uh, it's, it's a math problem. And I, as a former student budget director, I don't see how that works. Yeah. Well, and I think too, there will always be families who will choose to pay for private college. You know, so even even if we could go to public colleges tuition free, um, I don't think the apartments and the dorms are ever going to be free. And I, I think we're always going to have a range of choices at a range of price points. Right. Yeah. Well, with that, um, unless you have something further to add, I will say thank you very, very much. For this. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a delight to be on with you today and uh, just to talk about 529 plans. Uh, they're just a wonderful thing. They're underappreciated and not well known throughout the country. So this exposure is great. Yeah. Oh, we have one more question. Um, our divorce decree says the leftover, which there will be, go to the student. Can the student withdraw the value over several years of scholarship at the time? Um, when there's money left over. Um, so I think what I think the question is, um, there will be a surplus at the end. Does the student have to take it all out at once or can it be withdrawn in bits and pieces? Yeah, it sounds like if you have scholarships along the way, but you have to match the expenditure, the year of the expenditure with the year of the withdrawal. So you couldn't wait until you're done and say, okay, now I'm taking I it off. I want to this money over four years after I graduated. It's got to happen the same year you incurred the expense. Yeah. And then let's say hypothetically there's $10,000 left in the account at the end of college once all the expenses have been paid. Um, 
and whatnot, then yes, the student could take that out incrementally every year. For example, you know, if their standard deduction is $12,500 um, and their first year out of college, they don't work for a whole lot and they want to um, get some out tax-free, they can absolutely do that. You know, on an annual basis, they can look at what their tax situation is um, and then and then do withdrawals accordingly. The, um, the and uh, you know, as Richard has mentioned, the tax and any applicable penalty only applies to the gain in the account. So let's say you had contributed a total of $40,000 to your account and your account was worth $50,000. That means 20% of it is gain. Now you've got this $10,000 left over. So of that $10,000, $2,000 of it is taxable income to you. So you can distribute that. You know, if you took that out over a period of uh, four years, that would be $500 of taxable penalty, you know, and subject to penalty income each of those years. So not a, not a big burden. Um, and for a young person to have an extra $2,000 or I guess 2,500, if I said 10 years, $10,000 over four years, you know, to have an extra couple thousand dollars a, a year could, could be a meaningful thing. They could of course say, hmm, I'm interested in graduate school or um, cooking school in Italy or uh, <laughs> any of those many other things that you could use the 529 for and they could just set it aside for that as, as, as well. Um, kind of a nice, a, a good rule of thumb would be if you don't specifically need it for something else, leave it in the account because life changes, plans change. Um, and as we've seen over the last several years, opportunities to use 529s have changed as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, Richard, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Anne. And uh, I'm going to shut off our live stream right here. Thanks to everyone who um, listened. And if you're listening to this after the fact and have additional questions, just go ahead and um, and shoot them to me either uh, on, via my website, thecollegefinanciallady.com or my uh, Facebook page, The College Financial Lady. Thanks so much.